Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. The year is 1982. And if I'm here and you're here, this is our time, brah. Let's go hang with Spicoli because the movie is Fast Times at Ridgemont High. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are creating the best movie list of all time and once we do that we're sending it in to outer space to show the aliens what human life is like uh we are in the middle let's of aim our... it at venus man venus Ooh, yeah. is hopping a lot of stuff going on there right now uh amy we are in the middle of our uh coming of age back to school miniseries we're talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High today, but next week we'll be talking about an audience favorite. This is one that you all voted on. Uh, we asked you to tell us what movie you want us to feature on the show, and it was a very tight race. We had uh, five finalists. These are the ones that really were uh, bucking for uh, the position to be on the show, and let's go through that right now. I want to give a shout out mention to the number six one, which was Battle Royale, the Japanese uh, movie that I was I, kind of pulling for. But. I wanted that so bad. When we first started talking about this miniseries, it was actually on the list and it fell off. Uh, so we'll get to it eventually. Uh, all right. Number five. Number five was Heathers. Ooh, interesting. I like that. Excellent choice. Number four was Election. Okay. Oh, wow. You see, now I thought Election was going to rise right to the top because at one point it was the... It was the first the, contender for a while. Yeah, yeah for a was, long time. Okay, great. What else we got? Number three is a big surprise. It's the Dark Horse Underdog rising up there. It was Sing Street, that musical Whoa. from a few years ago. Do you remember that? Yes, I, I like Sing Street a lot. Uh, but wow, that's a real outlier to get that much love. Uh, I'm impressed by that much love. I would not have guessed that at all. Yeah, not at all. Okay, this is an interesting list because right now I don't know where we're headed. Uh, all right, what's the next one? Number two is one of the big dogs. It is The Breakfast Club. What? All right. I thought for sure if it wasn't going to be election, it was definitely going to be the Breakfast Club. You okay? So the audience has picked not the Breakfast Club, not election, not not Heather's, not Heather's. I mean, what have they picked? I mean, is it super bad? It is. Let's call it a predecessor to super bad. It is dazed and confused. Oh, that is a great choice. I'm excited. We get to do. Oh, this is going to be really fun. I love. I love that movie. And uh, what an eclectic choice for this kind of coming-of-age thing. I think this kind of puts it all in perspective. We've done a lot of films that take place in the past on this, which I really like as well. 
Yeah, it's all about about that reflection, man. Yeah, you know, all right. we get older, but our movies stay the same age. Yeah, McConaughey <laughs> finally getting on the pod. Um, Amy, before we move forward, uh, a little piece of business um, that I have to take care of, which is I am officially giving you the crown of L.A. Uh, <gasps> my Clippers. Uh, I mean, they clipped. They clipped uh, in a in the most aggressive way possible. And uh, we are now watching from the sidelines as L.A. tries to bring home a championship. And I, uh, you, the the better team, I'll say it, the better team this year won. So there you are. There you are. And, and uh, if I didn't know that already, Laker Nation has told me numerous times on social media. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, but congratulations to getting in the Western Conference Finals. Thank you. We will do our best. And I want to say I am a bit heartbroken on on your behalf as well. I take no glee in in your destruction and the way that series played out. That was brutal. That was painful to watch. I was actually pulling for you because I thought an LA an LA showdown, the Battle of LA, would be amazing. Now I have to put oh. all my hopes on us being able to pull that off in twenty twenty one. I would mean, love to see us go head to head like that. I'm I'm sorry that Sergeant Meatball only got to wear his Clippers jersey once. Yes, Sergeant Meatball has an amazing uh, Clippers uniform uh, now, thanks to Amy, and at least he got one. One good use out of it, uh, but I don't think I'm really, uh, really getting a lot of Clipper fans on the bandwagon. June is really so dismayed and embarrassed. Gus, I've scarred him for life the first time he really followed a team, and then I had to explain why they lost. And then Meatball, uh, sadly, the first time he puts on a jersey, the team loses. So we are, Clipper Nation is in deep, deep despair, uh, but we will be back. We will rise again to be the underdog yet again. <laughs> You will be back. You're just adding to your narrative, adding to the narrative. And exactly. that's what we do in L.A. We tell stories. Exactly. And we have a great story to tell today. And actually, it's an L.A. story. So, Amy, should we get into uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont Hunt? Well, let's get into it with a quickness. The year is 1982. Both Epcot Center and Graceland open to the public. Michael Jackson releases the album Thriller and Princess Grace Kelly of Monaco dies in a car crash. E.T. quickly surpasses Star Wars as the highest-grossing film of all time, a title which will hold for 11 years. Time Magazine's Man of the Year is The Computer, which I think we've talked about here on the show before. The notable firsts of the year include The CD Player, Artificial Heart Transplants, The Weather Channel, Emoticon Smileys, look at that, and Late Night with David Letterman. This year's hot films are E.T., Sophie's Choice, Tootsie, Blade Runner, and Today's Subject. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Amy, really interesting that this is the year, really a big year for the AFI list. I mean, that's E.T., Sophie's Choice, Tootsie, and Blade Runner. Uh, Let's take a listen to a clip. May I help you? Uh, Yes, this is not the best breakfast I ever ate, and I'd like my money back. Uh, Okay, Uh, I believe you have to fill out a form for that. Uh, No, I'd like my money back now. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way, you see... I have to fill out a form and, well, you ate most of it already, so... You see that sign? It says 100% guaranteed. You know what the meaning of guarantee is? Did they teach you that here? Sir, if you just wait a minute. Look, just put your little hand back in the cash register and give me my $2.75 back, please, Brad. Sir, if you just give me a minute, I'll find the forms. I'll take care of everything. I don't have a minute. You've made me late enough. I am so tired of dealing with incompetence. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It is the story of about a half dozen high schoolers whose life revolves around three things. 
sex, school, and the mall. And the mall, including all of the different jobs they do to make money at the mall. And the class is pretty incredible. It's full of all of these then pretty much unknowns who went on to become huge stars. You've got Jennifer Jason Lee as Stacy, the innocent girl who falls for, I think, way too many creeps. Uh, Phoebe Cates as her best friend Linda, who uh, has a lot of bad, dubious dating advice. You've got Judge Reinhold, the judge himself, as Stacy's older brother Brad, whose entire social life revolves around where he flips burgers. And of course, Sean Penn as Spicoli, the stoner comic relief. And if that's really not enough, you've got Eric Stoltz as Spicoli's best friend. You've got Forrest Whitaker as the local football star. And you've even got Nick Cage as one of Brad's buddies who winds up getting all of his dialogue cut out. All surrounding at the cast, because we just got to keep going. This is a huge cast. You've got Brian Backer as Mark Ratner, the movie theater dweeb who pines over Stacey, and his best friend, Damon, played by Robert Romanus, who scalps tickets and reprehensibly stands up Stacey when she asks him to help her get an abortion. The movie, I think, has this really great frankness about teen life that we're going to get into, courtesy of the fact that it is another movie based on a book. Here it is a nonfiction book written by Cameron Crowe, who, if you've seen Almost Famous, you know that Cameron Crowe entered the workplace first force really early when he was a 16-year-old reporter for Rolling Stone. He never got his senior year, so he decided he was going to spend a year hiding out in a real high school to figure out what he missed and also write a really good book about it. Now, the movie is uh, directed by our special guest today. Oh, I'm so, so excited. excited. Oh, I'm not wearing my Amy Heckerling shirt. Imagine that I'm wearing it because I yeah. have one. Uh, but it is directed by Amy Heckerling, who later went on to do Clueless, a movie that we love here. And now if we take that and rewind it back, if you are cruising to the mall to see Fast Times on August 13th, 1982, the number one song on the charts that was playing, you'd be hearing the theme song to another hit movie from the summer of 1982. Now, Paul, I just want you to close your eyes I want to see how long it takes you when this music starts up for you to say what that movie is. Because okay. if you're not a dweeb, if you are, in fact, the coolest guy at the burger stand, you're going to know this right away. Oh, uh, he already know it. <laughs> he already knows it. He already yeah. knows it. I mean, let's let's rock out for a second. That is the theme to James Cameron's The Terminator, right? What? Yeah, it's the Terminator theme, you know, and Terminator, James Cameron's The Terminator. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you are the underdog. <laughs> Everybody else yelling at Paul right now from wherever no, you are is saying, is. I'll give you one more Rocky, chance. Rocky. Come on, Amy. <laughs> I mean, you know that song. I mean, that song is played 90 <laughs> times in Rocky IV. Uh, Rocky the- Three. And Rocky four. and four. Well, I mean, four because he knew it was yeah. a hit. I feel like he yeah. dropped it in a couple more times. <laughs> um, this movie, wow! Um, I'm so happy we're doing it here in this position, the last of our picks, because I think overall this movie captures my favorite parts of each of the movies we have done before. I think it has a frank realness. It feels like a documentary. I think um, there's great humor. There is real moments. Um, I think that we are seeing something that feels incredibly unique uh, to a time and a moment. Um, And it captures a high school experience that in many ways is probably the most well-rounded out of all the high school experiences that we've seen. I mean, that's how I was looking at it after watching all these films back to back. It just really 
you can see how this took from the past and how people took this and moved into the future. It's a kind of a good middle ground movie. Yeah, very much. And I think this is another one of those movies that because the people who made it were so young, it doesn't feel phony. You know, Amy Heckerling no. is only 29 when she makes this. Cameron Crowe is only 24 when he is there on set. He had he wrote the script. He adapted it from his own book. It feels really real. It's shot in a real mall. You know, the cast is a little bit old, but but they're fine. They're fine. Jennifer Jason Lee, I think, is a very convincing freshman. Yeah, I really had to have a suspension of disbelief in every one of these films because even like James Dean does not look like a high schooler to me. I'm sure he was close to it, but he doesn't look it. Uh, the cast of Cooley High, who I know were around the same, they, no one looks like a high schooler. And I think maybe that's the one thing that we've gotten closer to in films that we make now. Kids look younger in these films. I mean, Mean Girls, they look much younger than any of these movies that we have done. And I think we've followed that trend more and more. That's true. I mean, because you can say, you know, arguably when Fast Times comes out, nobody was expecting it to be a hit because they're like teenage movies aren't popular. Nobody likes high school movies. They're not considered to do well. And when you think about the year 82 and this cast, this comes out right when the Brat, the Brat Pack is getting discovered. You know, like mm. youth culture is going to take over right after this. You know, we're going to get that like ascendant class of really good youthful actors. But there's, a, I think, a bit of a vacuum here in 82 before we get like your Molly Ringwalds, before this like whole culture rises up and we become, you know, we, we really launch the next wave of superstars that to me defined my own generation growing up. Yeah, I mean, this cast is the love boat of movies. I mean, it's a cannonball <laughs> run. It, every person in this really has achieved or achieved right after it a tremendous amount of success. I mean, Forrest Whitaker, I was like, wait, he's in this? I forgot he was in this. I've seen this movie uh, a million times. And seeing like Sean Penn be this goofy was so joyful to me. It, it kind of brought to me the same feeling I had when I saw Lindsay Lohan, just a little bit more youthful and not present day Lindsay Lohan. I don't know, like there's there's something really fresh about it. And I think the reason why these actors had this level of success is the way they were directed and the way they acted. It's so naturalistic. It's so not uh, over the top. And I think when you look at the context of everything coming out here, especially in the teen space, it's movies like Porky's, right? It's, it's big and you know, for lack of a, a better term, like there's a lot of nudity. There's, it's gross out. It's, it's, it's a, it's like zapped with Scott Bale and Willie Ames. Like this is, this is a, a real film and, and kind of more akin to the films that I think you would make today. Uh, so it is an outlier in that sense. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think how Porky's a movie that I'm not even sure I've ever seen. I, yeah. Maybe I've seen a sequel. I don't I've really seen Porky's know. The Revenge, and I actually I did watch Porky's once because I was like, I need to watch it. I didn't even realize that Porky's is like a movie about like the 50s. Like I thought it was like a movie <laughs> that took place in the 80s. I didn't realize it was like uh, a movie that looked back in the past. I don't think I realized that either. Like, it, because it, it feels like Porky's cast this gigantic silicone tit shaped shadow over all of the movies that come out in the early 1980s where they're all cheesier than they they all sound cheesier than they actually are Uh, to me i'm extending this idea i'm really thinking in my head of risky business a movie that is high art and incredibly intelligent and yet i think is considered like porkies with tom cruise when it's not that at all no i mean it's so not that by the way that would be a great movie to do on the show um that movie's amazing i love that movie uh you're right there's something very plain about this film. And it, again, 
brings up this irrational anger that I have about American Graffiti, because we've already talked about this in reference to Cooley High. I think this movie does American Graffiti better than American Graffiti. Um, you know, it's not the same exact thing. I think Cooley High is probably a better uh, comparison, but it's a group of different kids going through different things. And uh, I really, really appreciated this movie for its artistry and its dialogue and its direction uh, more than I ever have on this watch after watching all these other films that we've been watching. And to that point, I just wanted to see what you thought. I talked about this earlier. Like, there is a feeling about how the camera moves around these people where it feels to me at times like a doc. It just feels so small. And I think that's the thing I was really impressed by. It felt like you were capturing real moments. There was nothing big or broad about it. Um, and in all the films that we've watched, probably the exception being like Forender Blows, everything seems a little bit more heightened. And this film felt much more grounded. Um, and that, I think, was really interesting. Yeah, I feel like the moments where the movie stumbles is because it becomes a different movie for a minute. It becomes like yes. a less kind of movie. To me, the, the moment that I'm absolutely thinking of is that towards the end of the film, when Spicoli has been like the comic relief the whole time right. decides he's going to take the stage and like sing Wooly Bully at the, at like the giant oh, dance. Yeah. I mean, here's that. In that moment, the movie like becomes, I think, a standard 80s movie, which it isn't for the rest of it. Because what well, it really feels like is it feels like a documentary about the mall and like teen economics. The moment I thought you were going to say was the surfing dream montage, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it's so out of the blue. It's so not even in the tone of the film. And when I was doing my research, I found that that was a scene that was shot after the film was already screened under pressure from the studio because they're like, we need more Spicoli. He's the funny one. And we'll talk to Amy Heckerling about this, but they really wanted to focus Spicoli because they didn't have faith in the film. I mean, this movie goes into I like some bigger issues. And I think you talked about it earlier. Jennifer Jason Lee, she has a heartbreaking, but so real story about trying to find love in high school and, and, I mean, she's so wonderful in this movie. She is, I mean, I don't know who does that role as well as she can. It, it, like, she brings something to it. It's so youthful, but so innocent and not overdone. I, I'm, I'm, I was blown away by her in this movie. No, me too. It, it's weird. It's, I have this weird thing with Jennifer Jason Lee where I always forget that she was in this movie because I mm -hmm. only picture her grown up, you know, which right. is, it doesn't happen with many other actresses where I only, where I, where I divide them in two. And then I was like, no, why are you dividing them in two? Jennifer Jason Lee is incredible. And I think a lot of it, it is possibly the good and bad that came out of this. I mean, Jennifer Jason Lee had been acting for a really long time. She actually right before this was in a made for TV movie called the best little girl in the world, where she played a girl suffering from anorexia. I just want you to hear a little bit of this TV promo. Monday. She had everything. Drives me crazy. She never gave us a minute's trouble. I'm not going to eat that. Oh, yes, you are. But this is all my fault. I'd rather die. I did the best I could. 
Yeah, I mean, what happens is after this, they really kind of shunt her into an angle in her career where she's always playing like crazy ladies or victims or rape victims or sex workers. Ugh. She starts, I mean, somebody calls her like the Meryl Streep of bimbos. And I wonder if it's because she was so good and honest and frank here as a girl who is naked, but is really vulnerable that they're just like, well, she's our naked, vulnerable, like wow. victim-y girl. I mean, she doesn't really start getting taken seriously, I think, by this industry until single white female, which is also like crazy victimy girl. You know, it's right. in that same wheelhouse. It's just better and it's a hit. But she is such a good actress. And I think it, I don't know why it didn't happen for her immediately after this film, because she's unbelievable. Yeah, I think a lot of the times actors who don't do much in the sense of you're not seeing her act get shortchanged, right? It. It's not a showy performance while it is incredibly deep and realized. And I don't think that that often gets acknowledged as much as, for example, going back to Spicoli. Spicoli is the one that's like, that's our guy. And Sean Penn clearly explodes from this movie. And where Sean Penn is now versus where he was in this film is is kind of mind-blowing. But, um, you know, it is a bigger performance. And I think that we reward bigger performances always. I mean, it's just, it's... Uh, you know, I think probably in many respects, like, oh, it was a comedy. She's not the funny part of the comedy. So let's kind of shunt her off over here. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. In fact, for the resurrection or discovery or like celebration of Jennifer Jason Leigh, we, I think we actually have to credit our buddy Altman. Because mm. what Robert Altman does is oh, right. he casts her in shortcuts as the phone sex worker, you know, mm-hmm. kind of in her in the wheelhouse of how everybody had been seeing her. But she's, again, great. And I think because there's an Altman sheen on her, people start to take her more seriously. So he's like using her typecasting as a way of, I think, proving that she can do more. You know, and I think there's so many things at play that make this character pop and all the characters pop. Obviously, Cameron Crowe spends this year there. So he's getting um, a portrait, a real portrait of high school students. So that's why I think these high school students don't feel uh, very stereotypical, right? They, They are incredibly... Uh, unique. I think that that's why Eric Monty was able to create that kind of vibe in Cooley High, too, because these are his friends, right? These are not the traditional types. And I think Mean Girls does a great job of um, celebrating and tossing those types on their its head. But here, they're, you know, the nerds and the jocks, they're kind of, they're weird. Because, like, is Damone cool? I don't think he is. But he views himself as cool, and he's cool to rat. Like, so there's levels, right? Like, the only person that we know is cool is Forrest Whitaker because he is the star football player. And he's not a main character. He is really just dressing on the side of like, oh, that's our star guy. Um, But I think what this movie does so well about grounding stuff is putting them in these locations that feel so real. Like, the house that they live in is a perfect house. Like, that is a real house that these characters would live in. It's not over the top. It's... 
It's, uh, you know, the way that it's decorated. I, I just kind of couldn't get over that. I loved, I just love the houses. I love the locations. I love the cars. It, it, nothing felt Hollywood to me. I mean, there's that little moment where, you know, it's, it's at the moment where you hate Damone the most, where Damone mm-hmm. is, you know, he's been making phone calls to try to get money to pay for his half of the abortion. Yeah. Um, and he's standing her up, but you also see him leave his house and he lives like, it looks like kind of a tiny apartment in like a giant complex, you know, and you see that his house isn't that nice. And there's just that little bit of like economic understanding of who he right. is that I think helps enrich it. It's it's like book smart. It's like getting to see Beanie Feldstein's character come out of like a slightly less ha- nice house, you know, like yeah. an ordinary, like a legit ordinary, not a Hollywood ordinary house. Absolutely. I think that this movie is incredibly middle class. I mean, it's, you know, and we don't really see parents in this film, which is interesting as well. We talked a lot about how kids are left to their own devices in these films. Uh, 400 Blows really does that incredibly well. But here, you know, parents are not involved at all. I mean, the really the only adult figure we have of any regularity is Mr. Hand. And Mr. Hand is also played to a certain degree uh, for comedic purposes. Like, you know, I feel like he is part of the comic relief. So it is interesting that all these stories are telling us the same thing, which is like kids in high school feel like they're by themselves as a parent. Now, all I want to do is make sure that I am available to my kids because that's the one thing that I'm feeling throughout all these films is like, I have to go and do it alone. And maybe that's what you have to do as a high school student to get ready to go to college and go off on your own. But there is such a sadness overwhelmingly to all these characters because it doesn't, seem like anyone's checking in on them. Yeah, there's a cut scene. There's actually a ton of cut scenes from this movie that are online yeah. if you want to watch them. There's a couple I'm going to play later. But one of them is where Brad goes to his guidance counselor. And his guidance counselor messes up his name, thinks he's a different guy. And then is like, what do you mean you're not really thinking about college? And she's like, I just really haven't had time. Like, I'm working all the time to try to make money. And she's she starts talking to him like he's just a slacker goof off. And he's like, when am I slacking? You know, I work right. constantly. Like, this is one of the rare movies where I feel like puts work center almost of these yeah. kids' lives. Because we don't really see that in most of the movies of, like, the 90s. You know, no. everybody's just kind of comfortable and they have money and they do hijinks. But the idea that not only that these kids all have to work, but that their identity is defined by where they work. Yeah. And I think that the mall is kind of a great moment to pull everybody together because that's, of course, where everyone would be working because that's the hot place to be. It's not like they're not working there because it's hip and cool. It just happens to be that the mall is a grouping of stores that need people to work for a minimum wage. So they're all there. So it kind of it like I think another version of this movie would be like, you got to work at the mall because that's where it's at. It's like, no, it just, the mall happens to be the place where the jobs are. Right. It's true. And, you know, the mall that they shot it at, the Sherman Oaks Galleria, I didn't realize how new it was. Yeah, that mall only opened in 1980. And when it opened in 1980, it was called the, quote, first commercial integrated regional urban shopping center complex in Southern California. So malls weren't really a thing, which is hard for me to wrap around my head around. I've always been in a world of malls. Is but that the, idea the that Valley Girl Mall, too? It is. It is. And so, like, these two movies together really create mall culture and set up this idea of what a mall was, which I took as a given. I never realized growing up how new malls were, and now they are dying. But Uh, that that malls just had this little lifespan, and it was almost dazzling. Like, look at the mall. How does the mall work? What is going on in this mall? 
I mean, going to Minnesota for the first time, I wanted to go to the Mall of America because it's like oh, the yeah. world's biggest mall. And it was. Did you go? Oh, hell yeah. I went to yeah. Camp Snoopy, rode on roller coasters. I mean, I've been there multiple times now. Um, Whoa. I've only I've been once, but I had the little there. mini donuts. And oh, yeah. So great. I mean, there is something so safe about a mall in the sense that, um, I mean, you're, it's comfort food, it's items, it's strolling. And I think, you know, uh, it really is the last of this culture of like the browsing culture. I think we've talked about this a lot too. Like you could go and hang out in a record store. You can hang out in a comic book store. You could, you could wander the mall. Like my high school experiences were, you know, we, we were about a half a mile away from a mall. We would go to the mall after school. It was so much fun because they can't kick you out. Like you could walk around, like it's a hangout. That's not a bar because you can't go to a bar at a, you know, at that age. So I think that there's a great, it's just a great, place to be and and kind of exist with your friends that's safe and your parents are okay with. You're right. And it's kind of like a good parallel for just these kids themselves because it's like adulthood with the training wheels off. Right. I think the mall for me growing up in suburban Texas was easily the first place that my parents were like, you're on your own. Like here's 20 bucks. We'll see you in two hours. Like have fun. It's like Disneyland. Like nothing will happen to you at the local mall. And I'm sure that there's many cases where that is not the case. But, yeah, one uh, of my friends got murdered. But what in the yeah, mall, at our Amy? Mall. Well, well, yeah, he, um, they were hanging oh out at the God. mall. This is in high school, and um, they met a, a slightly older dude at the mall. He was hmm. only this guy was 19. My friend was 16, oh, no. and they were like, "Let's go smoke weed." I wasn't there. Um, okay. I had some friends who were there. Um, they were like, "Let's go smoke weed." And uh, the guy was like, I'll drive you. And then the guy instead picked up my my male friend and drove him off into the countryside and murdered him. Oh, my God. So that God. happened at, uh, yeah, uh, that, that was North Star Mall wow. in Texas. I'll just wow. Say, yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Lesson <laughs> but, learned. Um, but that was, yeah, yeah, malls. You know, let, let's reboot by playing the opening go-go song of this movie. <laughs> Amy, uh, the music here is, uh, I was waiting for it to be a little bit more wall to wall, but there are a couple of shots, great music in it, but not as much as I thought was going to be in it. I thought it was going to be a little bit more like Cooley High in the sense of really like uh, all these hit singles, but I don't think the movie could afford it, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the the song that when I, th- I think of the most when I think about this movie is absolutely Jackson Brown, Somebody's Baby. Oh, yeah. A song that I love so much. Here's a happy memory. Last weekend, my boyfriend picked me up at a bagel shop where I just ran in to grab the bagels and we couldn't park because it was Larchmont. And he timed the stereo to play Jackson Brown, Somebody's Baby, so that it would be playing right when I got into the car. That's think, awesome. See, good you things have a good, You have a good boyfriend. <laughs> no, uh, but that is an excellent song. And I love they, they, they associate it so much with Jennifer Jason Lee's character. You know, that yeah. you want to take care of her, that she's... She's literally somebody's baby. You want to like make sure she's all right, like give her some space. Like it, it has this, I think, protective layer to all of her scenes when that song just kicks in. Yeah. And, you know, I know I'm saying that they don't have wall to wall songs, but those songs are giant songs. Like that song is big. 
Led Zeppelin. Like the mm-hmm. fact they got Led Zeppelin in this movie, I feel like that had to be some sort of a pull. Maybe it was a universal pull or a Cameron Crowe pull. But like to have that, I was like, whoa, I know that that has to be so expensive. Totally. And both times, I mean, I actually want to play clips of both of those songs because Amy Heckerling really smartly uses them as part of the movie. Mm-hmm. You're, that we've hear somebody's maybe the first time that Jennifer Jason Lee loses her virginity. And there's just, to me, I think that monumental insert shot of Jennifer Jason Lee looking up at like the Nazi oh. graffiti and then looking up at this guy and he's not making any eye contact with her. And it's so dis- disassociative in those two insert shots, just changing the entire tone of that scene and how masterful it is. And then she plays that song again when uh, she has sex with Damone and she uses it almost as comedy. Yeah. You want to take off your clothes, Mike? You first. Both of us at the same time. Okay. I guess I did. I gotta go, Stacy. I really gotta go. I mean, yeah, I mean, to time the abrupt cutoff of that song to the disappointment that she's yeah. feeling. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the sex in this movie, you know, Amy Heckerling, like, captures sex in a really interesting way. Like, that's, that guy is not a great guy, but he's also not, um, like, attacking her. Like, she's not a part, she's not a victim in it. But it's bad sex or it's, or it's like anticlimactic sex. It, it's such an interesting way to view sex. And both of those moments are shot in a way that I often don't see in film. Like, I like I don't know. I mean, you've seen more than I have. But I mean, what what is it about the way that she captures? I mean, teen sex is not great, right? Or maybe it is great. <laughs> but I But I feel like she does something so real here that actually makes it more uh, visceral or, or, you know, like relatable. Yeah, she pragmatizes it, you know, and I want to talk to her late when, when we get to talk to her later on about all of the struggles she had to make this movie not rated NC-17 or X, you know, to have it to get away with what she wanted to say in those sex scenes, which I think the studio was really uncomfortable with. But what I think she does is and here I am speaking as, you know, a former teenage girl is the messages you get about losing your virginity as a former te- as a, when you're a teenage girl are insane. You mm-hmm. know, even just the word losing, I know, is a bit problematic. You know, like, you'll lose, right. well, you're losing something. But if, I don't know if I, anybody else out here felt this way, but I feel like I was told as a young girl, you probably shouldn't do it with your serious boyfriend because then he'll immediately dump you or die in a car accident. You know, it was like something bad would happen. And if you <laughs> slept with your boyfriend, you would wind up like ultra heartbroken, like the most heartbroken you could ever do. Oh, and wow. it influenced a, a few of my friends and I to 
then just like sleep with somebody we didn't care about so it wouldn't be as bad. That sounds insane, but I'm no, saying I, this out loud because no, it, but of course I it's think like, it's true, a little true. Well, you don't know, <laughs> and, and and I think that like you go to trust somebody and you make these weird decisions. You're a kid, like you are a kid, and I think you're trying to figure out your body. I mean, for me, I grew up Catholic, and my family treated sex like, um, like you're gonna get like it is a given that you're gonna get somebody pregnant. It is not like it was so like beat into me. Like I had the fear of God about sex, um, underage sex. And, uh, you know, and I think this movie does a great job of showing peer pressure without it being like over the top, like you're saying, it's just casual. And I think Phoebe Cates is a beautifully done character. Cause I don't believe she has a boyfriend. I don't believe, I think that everything she's doing is totally made up. And yet we never have to reveal that. We never talk about it, but she, you know, is, she's somebody who is creating the system that she's not even a part of. So you have that, like, so you have that going on and you have this guy, the stereo guy who, you know, she's having sex with who isn't even a bad guy. Like, I don't, I don't even think he's like, he's just a stereo guy. who's like, he can't even take her home to his place. He's take her to like, like a dugout. It's so like, it's so lame and it's, uh, but it's wonderful in its sense of like, um, in how, like pedestrian it can be right and movies i think always put sex in this like we're having sex and we're in a room and the bed and the this and the that and and this is like no i mean you know you hook up it's weird you do these things like they're weird moments and they don't have to be bad like um traumatic they but they can be bad like that wasn't what i wanted it to be yeah i think pedestrian is such the right word for what she's doing here because there's such a gulf between you know, like rose petals everywhere and oh my God. And, or, and you're a victim, you know? Right. I, I love how there's like this refractory version of even the way that Phoebe Cates talks about like the stereo salesman, you know, he's an older guy in one breath. Right. And then when he hurts her friend, he's just a stereo salesman. And it's almost the same words she's using, but her tone, you know, like kind of upping the magic and lowering the magic. And I yeah. really like how Amy Heckling captures it, the, the dynamic of Jennifer Jason Lee wanting it to be good really for Phoebe Cates' sake. So she can tell Phoebe Cates it was good. And if she, if it wasn't, she's just going to lie. Yeah. And, and I always forget that the stereo salesman sends her flowers the next day, like all of those roses. Like he's not yeah. trying to be a jerk. It is. It really does exist in that like it happened, it happened gray area. But you don't think the boyfriend is real? Okay, because I always feel like the boyfriend isn't real. And then she has that big crying scene at the end where she's like, he isn't coming to my graduation. You think she's fake crying? Yep, yep, You yep. do? Oh, 100%. Like, because how about that scene where they're talking about how long her boyfriend lasts? And she's like, oh, like 20, 30, no, 30, 40. Like, it's, to me. That's true. She is definitely lying about that. She, I mean, in the way that she carries herself, like, I love that character because I think that character is real. Like she's her cachet is she's not like the Rachel McAdams. She is just trying her cachet is like, I I know. So people are going to come to me. There's a deleted scene where another girl like runs up to her to ask her a question about sex. Like she becomes that person. That's her power in high school. Um, and I and think that that's kind of an interesting her safe because she is clearly like the right. hot girl in school. You right. know, and like she gets to be the hot girl in school, but she has like the perfect excuse not to actually sleep with any of the creeps that she knows at school. 100% and so she kind of loops out of it with this, you know, I have a faraway boyfriend technicality, which I appreciate. Yeah. And she's, I mean, there's that scene. Well, one, I want to say like when they're having that conversation about 
how long their respective boyfriends last. And it turns out to be a completely imaginary conversation on both of their ends, in your view, which, Bria, I think so too. They're doing it over a giant salami. Oh, yeah. Which I think Cutting is that so salami funny. is such a, I was like, this is the, <laughs> the best blocking. But then also, what do you think about this scene where Phoebe's giving her advice on how to give a blowjob and mm-hmm. she's using a carrot? And what I what I appreciate about that scene is that you see that other people know what's happening and they're laughing and they clap, but there's never a little button of like, oh, now I'm embarrassed. Oh my God. She's just like, okay. You know, it, yeah. it doesn't seem like either defiant or shameful. It just is a thing she does. But you see, this is why I think that high school movies have fucked up kids in the way that they go to high school, right? Because that probably is more the case of how real high school is. But we start to take on these um, personas that we're seeing in movies, like more movies like this, more movies like Cooley High, more movies where we're not falling into cliches because I think that we model cliches or, you know, I want to be like that person. I see that movie, that movie, that person is me. And then we take on that personality. And so this whole movie is refreshing in that in the, in the same way to put it in the same idea that the abortion is so pedestrian. Like it's not like a movie of the week. I mean, it, it is weighted. It's serious, but the way that this movie jumps through time and these characters over this course of a year it could almost derail the whole film. And this became an obstacle that she has to get over. There's a deleted scene. I pulled it um, where you see her in the abortion clinic. And I think the way they actually did it is way better because she goes in and she comes out and we can kind of think about what we wanted. But I wanted to play that scene of her and the doctor uh, just to kind of hear what that scene was even like. Hello, Stacy. I'm Dr. Grant. Any questions before we begin? Does it hurt a lot? We use a local, but you'll feel some pressure. It doesn't last that long. Does it hurt more to have a baby? Yes. But I think you mind it less. Yeah, there's just a little bit of, I think, uh, a moralistic spin on that. I mean, I don't think the doctor's trying to be moralistic, but I think he's like, weigh your options, blah, blah, blah. And in this movie, she doesn't actually even wrestle with it. It's like, this happened... And this is my option. I'm picking yeah. this. Yeah. And I think that all the deleted scenes that I watch, and there's plenty of them, like you said, they all just push a little bit more in a direction that I think ultimately um, paints in the edges. And this movie works really well with not wrapping up everything so nicely and tightly. It sort of, um, it gives it more of a feeling of, we, we don't know what's going to happen or we, you know, like there's these gaps of time. Like it, I read this interview with Amy Heckerling and she said something that really rang out to me. She's like, I wanted this movie to be a film that if you put it on at any point, you could sink right into it. And that's what the movie does feel like. It's all these kind of vignettes and it doesn't, each section works at any point. Um, and that's really hard to pull off while also having a film that makes cohesive sense, right? Like, and I think a lot of directors try to do that. And I believe that, the best compliment to this will be Days and Confused uh, because they do a similar kind of uh, a thing with it. You know, Linklater does. Um, That's true. That's interesting. And you're right in that there's no built-in system in this film, even of like escalating levers of punishment or something. Right. It's not like she made this. Mis- I mean, in, you see that in 400 Blows, like he um, he like got in trouble this one day for holding the picture and then and then and then and it builds into this whole disaster for him. Right. Here, you know, 
there's an emotional weight on on the abortion. There's a, I mean, I think there's a lot of pain in the scene right here where she tells Damone that she's pregnant. I hope this is important, you know, because I could be blowing a big deal. Mike, I just... I just want you to know that I'm pregnant. How do you know it's mine? I mean, we only did it once. I haven't been with anybody else. I know it's yours. Jesus. I mean, it was your idea. You wanted to do it. I... You wanted it more than I did. No. Take that back. All right, all right. Take it back. Look, we got to do something about it. I mean, uh, we got to get an abortion. My brother Art got his girlfriend one once. It's simple. I mean, it's no big deal. Yeah. I, I got that plan. Um, it's going to cost $150 at the free clinic. Doesn't sound free to me. <laughs> I suppose you want me to pay for it. Half, okay? And a ride to the clinic? $75 and a ride. You know, the way that Heckerling gets out of this is it's not like everybody finds out she has an abortion and oh my God. Right. And like, it's not like she's it's not punished by her parents. It's, no, not like, the, it's not the clip that you just played for us, the, the, the whatever, the skinniest girl in the world or whatever that was, you know, it's like, yeah. which, which is, I think, what we're so used to seeing. And, and the that's cap run sex. is that she learns that her brother is there for her and he's not going to ask her too many questions and that she can rely on her brother. And I love that relationship. I love Judge Reinhold. I feel like, again, another character who isn't like overly a goof, but when he sees her in the rearview mirror, like again, so much acting that's so small. And that scene when they're together in that car, it's like, oh, this is a beautiful scene. Like this is, this scene could be in any drama and be pitch perfect. And yet it fits so wonderfully in this comedy. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. I feel like it is rare to find movies that have just like this kind of frankness towards abortion mm -hmm. in them. And we've had, we had two actually come out this year. So I want to just give them like the quickest shout out if people haven't seen them. You know, the first one is Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Oh, yeah. Which Saw is that. about, you know, two girls who have to like go overnight to try to um, get an abortion in yeah. New York City. And then the other one just came out. It's called Unpregnant. And it's the, it's about two girls who they live in Missouri and they have to drive all the way to New Mexico to get an underage abortion without their parents' consent. So they do this, this crazy road trip. Um, I actually prefer Unpregnant, honestly. It's like a lot. It, it's funny, but really, really endearing. And like you actually buy the two girls as friends. There's something, I don't know. There's something to me really off at the center of Never Really, Sometimes, Always. I, like it didn't. I, I agree like they, with you. They're cousins I, I, and she's at their pizza party at the beginning and they act like they don't know each other. I was like confused and I was like, what's OK, can I tell you my like nitpicky thing about that movie please, that drove yeah. me insane? Sure. What's up with the fucking suitcase? Oh, Excuse my, my language. No. They pack this suitcase. You see them put clothes in it, I guess, like sweaters yeah. and stuff, but they never are able to change their clothes, even though they're I bringing mean, on this whole suitcase that has apparently all their metaphor? clothes and it makes their life incredibly difficult. A metaphor, Amy, for Ugh. a child. It's a metaphor for a child. Don't give me a, a metaphor child. like that in your naturalistic abortion movie. But 
that movie and these movies, I mean, I didn't see them pregnant, but I know who directed it and I love her. She's amazing. Oh, she's uh, really good. There's Barbie she, Ferreira, 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 she's in it. She's amazing. Oh, yeah. But again, it's hard to thread a needle in a teen film about an abortion that is not the centerpiece of the film. It is mm-hmm. just a plot point of the film. And I would argue the true plot of her character is finding someone that she wants to be with. Like, who is that person? And going back to what you said in the very beginning, that's her arc. I love that arc. The abortion is a obstacle in that arc. Um, And that, I think, is a really tough feat to pull, right? Um, Yeah, it's like her deciding what she wants that's not trying to impress anybody else or what she's supposed to do. It's just like, oh, I've decided what I want is a guy to treat me nicely, and I want this, and I'm going to say this out loud without telling you that it's what I want. But I wanted to talk about Rat. Because that's who she does, you know, find this relationship with. And it takes a while to kind of mix. And to your point about girls telling uh, girls, like, how to lose your virginity, I think Damone fits the role of the guy telling a friend how to treat a woman, right? And Damone is viewed as cool to rap because rat is not cool. And Damone doesn't know what he's doing, but yet he's created all these fake things. What you do, you order for them. You, you know, you put on Led Zeppelin, like... You know, he creates this fake thing and I think essentially deflates the initial connection, right? Like because Rat is doing all this, they aren't able to connect. And 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 And, and the same th- thing with her because she's like, I guess I have to seduce him now. He's like right. nervous and freaked out. And I, I wanna actually play that for that rat advice scene. Look, what do I say to her once we get in the car? No problem, Rat. What you need is my special five point plan. Come on, Damone, I need real help here. What do you mean? Hey, men have died trying to obtain this valuable information, you know. But I'll give it to you for free. Okay, okay, what's your five-point plan? All right. Now pay attention. First of all, Rat, you never let on how much you like a girl. Oh, Debbie. Hi. Two, you always call the shots. Kiss me. You won't regret it. Now, three, act like wherever you are, that's the place to be. Isn't this great? Four, when ordering food, you find out what she wants, then order for the both It's a classy move. Now, the lady will have the linguine and white clam sauce and a Coke with no ice. And five, now this is most important, Rat. Comes down to making out. Whenever possible, put on side one of Led Zeppelin four. Oh, you're exactly right. I mean, A, I love the detail that the lady will have like the linguine oh, with yeah. the with a Coke with no ice. Like this oh. it, it really just adds this whole veneer of we're trying to be grown up and fancy and we have no idea what that is. It's just exactly. it just sums that up perfectly. But also yeah, that Led Zeppelin song, it's heckerling using it on purpose. It comes in so loud and it keeps them from being able to have any conversation. And then when you have this like nice, earnest moment where they both let their guard down, he doesn't know what to do because he's been told not to kind of be weak or show interest. And, and I think this is something that we all struggle with. Like when you like somebody, how do you tell them that you like them, but not give them too much? And, you know, this, this back and forth that you're always kind of dealing with. I think especially in teen romance um, plays out so well here. And I have to say that 
I couldn't help but compare Damone and Rat to another famous duo that we've already talked about. Could you guess who I'm thinking about? We've oh, done gosh. it. It's on the AFI I mean, list. By Rat. Now I'm thinking, is it is it Midnight Cowboy? No, I wish it was that clever. But to me, it's it's Woody Allen and Tony Curtis. Mm. Like I saw them in the, like, especially in the bedroom scene uh, when it's uh, Damone and him sitting in the room together having this uh, conversation. I was like, this is Annie Hall. This is this moment. And it, it felt like I think Rat has a little bit of uh, a Woody Allen-esque quality I to him. I think he does, right? Doesn't Rat yeah. seem like he goes into his own movie theater and he watches way too many Woody Allen movies and he's like, yeah. it's me, I'm nervous and twitchy, right? That's how yeah. this works. I, I felt like there was something really interesting there. I, I would love if I was uh, better prepared, I could uh, I could cut a scene together of them, uh, you know, and seeing the 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 uh, the dialogue pacing. But there was something that really brought me into that. It's it's like you're the cool guy, and and again, you know, is Tony Curtis super cool? I mean, I guess in Annie Hall he is. Um, but anyway, I did love that relationship because it was a not cool guy pretending to be cool, giving vice to a not cool guy who can't pretend to be cool. It was like that level of, of those, like kind of uh, those details. Like, again, these characters so rich, so fun to watch are not one dimensional. No, and, it's true. And when they have their big fight at the end, you realize that rat has known the whole time that yeah. Damone is a bit of a phony. Damone, what went on between you and Stacy? Let me tell you something, Rat. I mean, sometimes girls just go haywire. I mean, it happened a month ago. I've been trying to think of a way to tell you ever since we were out messing around and something happened it's all over i mean it's no big deal i never even called her again if you ask me right she's a very aggressive girl you understand what i'm saying no i don't understand she never really was your girlfriend right hey fuck you damone there are a lot of girls out there and you you have to mess around with stacy i mean what do you got to prove anyway Sorry. Look, I always stick up for you. Whenever people say, ah, oh, that, that Damone, he's a loudmouth, and they say that a lot, I always say, hey, you just don't know Damone. I mean, when they call you an idiot, I say, hey, Damone's not an idiot. You just don't know him. Well, you know something, man? Maybe they do know you pretty good. Maybe I'm just finding out now. Get lost. And then I have to draw one more comparison to another famous film. I'm watching Spicoli. And there's a scene where Spicoli is in his room uh, with Mr. Hand, and they're going over history. And I'm, uh, as I'm watching that, I go, oh, my gosh, this is the genesis of Bill and Ted. Like, <laughs> he is explaining history, going, oh, it was mega awesome, dude. And I was like, this is, like, if you watch that one scene, and I, of course, I don't know, but there is something about that I just, I immediately perked up. I was like, oh, that, this theory that you just this mini scene became an entire film i think you're right i mean because didn't i mean spicoli launched a thousand spicolis like yeah spicoli became a thing honestly i feel like part of the reason i talk sometimes as like 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 heavy as i do is because i grew up in a post fast times and valley girl world where this was the the mega monoculture that i was exposed to and so that the spicolis I don't think I would say like if not for this moment, you know, oh, if this yeah. moment I mean, in movie history. And I would love to break myself of this habit, but it will not happen because at this point I am old. I remember but, being in a, a science class when I was probably third or fourth grade. And I said like a lot. 
um, I've, I've cut down on it, but I remember the teacher getting so mad. He's like, will you stop saying like, 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 <laughs> like, 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 he was so upset. It must have come out of nowhere for adults. I mean, I never yeah. knew any different. And, you know, there are the moments where I think this movie has fun capturing its time. You know, the way that the way that they have that joke where every girl in school dresses like Pat Benatar. Mm -hmm. Linda, that girl looks just like Pat Benatar. I know. Wait, there are three girls here at Ridgemont who have cultivated the Pat Benatar look. Janelle Zimbler, Mary Ann Zlotnick in the red tights. Do you think guys find that more attractive? Oh, Stacy, please, give me a break. You are so much prettier than them. Yeah, I, I know. But you think they'd be better in bed? What do you mean better in bed? Either do it or you don't. No, I, that Pat Benatar joke makes me so happy because it's just pinpointing that <laughs> moment. And I feel like that that cafeteria scene, you see that refracted again in like Mean Girls and a Clueless. Like those oh, are the yeah. people who do this. These are the people who do this. But it also does build that world of like you start seeing the Pat Benatars everywhere in the movie and you feel like you get to know the Pat Benatars. I love that Brad on his awesome muscle car has a Springsteen sticker and he works at All American Burger. I mean, all of that is just like Captain America Oh, cliche yeah. land the all-american burger by the way was apparently in real life it the cool fast food place to work at according to cameron crow was a was a carl's jr everybody oh, wow. wanted to work at the carl's jr well he really used it as his social status i mean and again everyone here is like parlaying the little bit of power that they have and i think that's one of the favorite arcs in this film of judge reinhold who doesn't have like the the most rich arc his arc is almost just like trying to keep all these entry-level jobs uh, but he's being beat down by the system. Yeah, he's being beat down before he graduates. I Do you know. know, by the way, where the uncool fast food job was in real life that they turn into like the ye old fish? Oh restaurant yeah, no, here? yeah. Just guess what? 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 What I fast mean, food restaurant do you think is the lame one if Carl's Jr. is the cool one? Well, I thought it would be like Arthur Treacher Fish and Chips, but I mean, if it's not that, I mean Arby's. I don't know what. What would it be? It was. Um, Jack in the Box, which I'm surprised oh, by because wow. I associate Carl Jr. and Jack in the Box at the same level. I'm Me shocked too. that for Cameron Crowe, one was much cooler than the other. But, you know, that's such a high school decision, right? Like, that's such a, that's the cool one. That's not the cool one. Yeah. Like, you know, while we're talking about the fish place, can I just give a shout out uh, to someone in it, uh, which is Judge Reinhold's boss. That actor is Stuart Kornfeld. And he's actually not an actor. He's uh, an amazing producer who has worked on probably some of your favorite movies from Tropic Thunder to Dodgeball. Uh, but he also worked for Mel Brooks for quite some time and was responsible for introducing Mel Brooks to David Lynch. And that is the reason why uh, Elephant Man exists, because Elephant Man is a Mel Brooks film. I worked with Stuart. Uh, he is a genius. He uh, just passed away this year. He's a good friend of Amy's. Um, and I've seen them together so many times. Uh, but I just wanted to uh, just give a shout out to this legendarily cool producer who look on his IMDb and you will be blown away by what he did, who he worked with and his career that just spanned uh, such a long time. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to go to his uh, his funeral and uh, and the, the way that people spoke about him and the people that he interacted with throughout his life. Like he really was one of the last um, producers that love like the circus element of Hollywood. Like he was surrounded by people who were all the, the interesting 
cool like artists and he believed in like that uh mentality and an incredibly uh, funny guy so i just wanted to shout out Stuart, who i just I, I love dearly i'm glad that you did that and that makes me wonder if Stuart is why one of the people that cameron crow first met with about directing this film was actually david lynch oh interesting well yeah, yeah. Stuart really was uh was one of these people who um found talent i mean Stuart was one of the people who helped you know, bring human giant in to meet with Ben Stiller, you know, him and uh, Mike Rosenstein, like, like he was a champion of cool, interesting people and making them work together. I love that. It, apparently the story too, is that they sat down and Cameron Crowe talked to him about this entire film and what he wanted David Lynch to be able to do with it. And David Lynch, um, it looked kind of there sweet. He said it was very, very sweet, but looked kind of confused. And then finally said, it's a very nice story, but it's not really the kind of thing that I do, but good luck. And then he drove <laughs> away. But that's, oh I love, I love all of that. That's, thank you for shouting that out. Cause I feel like you're right. We need to shout out more of the people who make stuff happen that don't get the credit. Yeah. I love that kind of uh, a producer. I mean, I will never forget, and I'm sorry, this is going way off track, but when I saw a test screening of Tropic Thunder, um, he brought Mel Brooks because he wanted to see what Mel Brooks's reaction to Tropic Thunder was. And like oh. Mel Brooks is there to give like notes and thoughts on Tropic Thunder. And it was so cool to sit around and be like, oh, like this is his crew. Like, and again, I think a lot of the times too, we forget about, uh, you know, people who are older and, and like, oh, no, we need younger voices in here too. And I just love that like Mel was like one of those people. He's like, no, I'm going to bring Mel in here too, because if we're, we're trying to make this movie better. And at that point, the movie was great. Uh, we need to get his his voice as well. So it was kind of a cool thing to know that he was always bringing in like these people that you wouldn't expect to give notes or be at a script reading. Um, you know, Permanent Midnight, Jerry Stahl, him and Jerry Stahl, great friends. Like Jerry Stahl was, I was in a couple of punch up rooms with Jerry Stahl, who was another amazingly weird, cool guy, worked on ALF. And if you've seen Permanent Midnight, that's great run there, but it's just an amazing writer. But yeah, anyway, uh, and I feel like it makes sense. Like Amy Heckerling and him worked on many projects together. I love, you know, let's play his scene at the fish place. What are you doing? I'm changing. But you took off your Captain Hook uniform. Well, I thought I'd put my street clothes on for the drive over to IBM. The uniform's kind of uncomfortable. Hamilton, you're going over there as a representative of Captain Hook Fish and Chips. Part of our image, part of our appeal is that uniform. You know that. You really want me to put this stuff back on? Yes, I do. Show a little pride. <sighs> By the way, can we say one more thing about this fish place? Can we talk yeah. about what they apparently have on the menu? There's nothing to eat here. What do you mean there's nothing to eat here? Take a look. There's nothing that I can eat here. Get a trout dog. Forget it. Do you have any fish here that isn't breaded? It's all prepared the same way. Forget it. Get a whaler. Oh, what a clam wish. You ever hear the word blemish? You want me to eat something deep fried? Let's get out of here. Let's go. Thank you. Come again and have a nice day. Oh. Is there a trout dog? I've seen kind of things like this. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. You've seen trout dogs? Well, I mean, in the sense that like, I feel like people are trying dogs. to like put other things in buns that don't belong in buns. We don't need to make fish dogs. Ugh, gross. No, it's true. I mean, Although I mean, actually, you know what I'm going to try this weekend? I'm a little nervous about it. What? Well, because the L.A. County Fair is closed. And so it okay. means I can't get the number one thing to eat at the L.A. County Fair, which is the triple cheeseburger on two Krispy Kreme donuts. Oh, wow. It's amazing. It sounds insane. I want it's that. really one of the best things I've ever had. I'm going to try to make it this weekend. And I decided 
for the sake of this burning planet, I'm going to try to do it with a Beyond Burger. So I'm a little nervous that like okay. a Beyond Burger triple cheeseburger on Krispy Kreme donuts is like sacrilege. But if no, you can put a trout good. to a dog. You could do it. Look, a trout dog is really just uh, a poor man's lobster roll, really. Uh, so- hey, that's not bad, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I should just say that. <laughs> By the way, while we are honoring the people behind the people who helped make this movie possible, do you know who inspired Mr. Hand? No. Oh, this is funny. I mean, first, actually, just as a little point of interest, the first actor that they considered trying to cast as Mr. Hand was um, Fred Gwynn, you know, from Herman Munster. Oh, love him. Yeah. Yeah. Love her. I love Fred Gwynn, too. But he turned it down because he thought there was too much sex and drug in the script. Drugs used in the script. Uh, so Herman Munster was like, too far, too far. So they gave it to um, Ray Wellstone, and he based the character of Mr. Hand on none other than Steve McGarrett in Hawaii Five-0. Apparently, according to Cameron Crowe, the real teacher that he based Mr. Hand on really was obsessed with Hawaii Five-0 and was trying to be like cool that way with his kids. I love that. And then, you know, the other teacher who's played by one of my favorite uh, character actors, Vincent Chiavelli, uh, mm-hmm. he was also based on just a very bizarre uh, teacher that they had there that, you know, had uh, bizarre field trips and weird carcasses in his science lab. I identify with that because when I was in middle school, our science teacher wanted to take us to a kidney dialysis center uh, to see how that would work. And the parents just rightly rejected it. And I was like, my God, that would have been really intrusive to have like a bunch of sixth graders walking around a kidney dialysis center. Like that makes it, but I feel like some of these science teachers really uh, go off the deep end. And I feel like he did it in a a beautifully restrained way and has the best end title card, which is also kind of a fuck you to American graffiti because the title cards are so uh, kind of funnily benign. Like he went back to drinking coffee. (laughs) except do you know who his wife is in the movie okay mr vargas's wife is uh that beautiful blonde is lana clarkson does that name sound familiar to you oh wait it does but i don't know why no maybe i'm thinking kelly clarkson who's lana clarkson lana clarkson is the actress who was murdered by phil specter oh yes okay oh wow yeah that's her going dark on this episode i Oh, God, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, that's, oh, wow, so interesting. You know, all of these people are based on people um, for the most part, except that when this movie came out, Cameron Coe couldn't tell anybody what school he went to okay. because he was really worried about getting lawsuits. So people were, were accusing him of actually making up everything that was in the film. And he was like, I swear I didn't. I just promised the principal that I wouldn't tell what school it was. Part of his deal with the principal is like, he um, bragged to the principal that he like because he was he worked for Rolling Stone. He knew all these rock stars, and the principal was like, "Okay, that's fine. You can hang out here and make your movie. Like you could do it. You can um, or write write your book. You can write your book on us." But like years later, the kids who were actually in the school that Cameron Crowe went to, one of them sued. Have Whoa. you heard about this? No. Yeah. Okay, so there's a guy, his last name is Rathbone, and he says that he is the character who Rat was based on. And he took this kind of offensively because he's like, the thing is, in shaping me into a character in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Cameron Crowe took all the cool stuff I did and like gave it to other characters. This this oh, um wow. this guy it's Rathbone was like yeah, I was the guy who ordered the, the pizza to the classroom. I ordered uh, the pizza. It wasn't Spicoli, but to make so Spicoli dumb. cooler and to make me more lame, he gave that to Spicoli. 
And so, yeah, he sued. He was really mad about it. They dropped the lawsuit because Cameron Crowe wound up giving him a guitar that belonged to his wife, who's Nancy Wilson, who was in Heart at the time. Um, but yeah, it was this, wow. this whole ordeal. And one of the fun facts about Rathbone is he wound up being the person who helped write a lot of those for dummies books. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So like Rathbone wound up being smart if you're like, you know, I'm into Shakespeare for dummies. By the way, he created a whole industry. While we're talking about real life and how the incidents in this movie may or may not happen, I thought it would be interesting, Amy, if we put one thing that happened in this movie to the test, which is the robbery in the film. The robbery at the 7-Eleven or the Kmart, Circle K, whatever it is. Um, it's a great little scene, but there was a piece online that I found where they have a real-life thief breaking down uh, robberies. And what? here is his interpretation of the Fast Time scene. In this clip, you see the exact opposite of a professional. What are you doing? It's safe! Behind the donuts! I'm watching this place. I know what I'm doing. The manager or that store clerk would never have access to a safe. And the safe wouldn't be there uh, right behind the hostesses on the counter as well. Uh, it would be a drop safe. All convenience stores, 7-Elevens, uh, Wawa's, they all have what they call a drop safe which has a, a opening on the top that can handle an envelope in cash. And every $100, usually in a cash register, after they have $100, they, they drop that. And you can't get into that drop safe. They'll have a lock that's only open, usually by the owner or a manager who comes in later to empty that and check the receipts. That's what they do. He walks in. He sprays paint over the camera like the camera didn't see him already. In today's world, we have cameras that have uh, off-site monitoring and their straight live feeds to another area. Back in the 80s, when this movie was made, they didn't have that. And uh, they would have had a tape machine in the back office. And in the back office, you can actually go in there as a criminal and take the tape out and they wouldn't have any kind of feed of you. You see the manager grab coffee, throw it in the face of the criminal. Obviously, he's defending himself and he's allowed to do that, of course. And he uh, is encouraged not to do that, though. Most police don't want you to get involved. They want you to give the money away as quick as you can and get rid of him and observe as much as you can because you don't want to get killed. Nobody wants to get hurt. The first action of everybody involved should be safety. And that goes to safety of your customers. If this guy's armed and you did something and he shot you and then Spicoli walked out of the bathroom and then got shot as well, you're talking about a very dangerous situation that could have been. You also saw the getaway driver take off. Uh, believe it or not, with drug addicts, that'd probably be pretty common. And the one who got caught would be telling on the one who didn't get caught. That would be pretty common, too, especially with drug dealers. So I'm sorry I played that for so long, but it's so funny. It, it, it keeps on getting funnier because I just feel like he's taking it so seriously. So uh, maybe Cameron Crowe did uh, lie about a few things because, uh, you know, clearly that scene was broken down pretty easily well, by our former jewel thief. Who's to say that Robert was any good at his job? He was clearly very bad at it. So, <laughs> I, you know, if we're not, he's he's a newbie too. He's young. He's right. learning. He's got well, a lot of robbing to do before. He's very good. <laughs> so, Amy, we have Amy coming up uh, in a little bit. But before we get there, obviously, we love this movie. Obviously, this movie is standing the test of time. Uh, but when it comes out, you know, this is a film that the studio doesn't really believe in. Um, but did the critics get it? Well, first, I want to talk about when it came out, because this movie was sold bizarrely, which is another thing I want to talk to Amy about. Let's just listen to the trailer. They really tried to sell it as a completely different movie. 
Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud. Let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. <laughs> Brad Hamilton, the fast food king. I shall serve no fries before their time. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Charles Jefferson, a man with a mission. Oh, gnarly. Linda Barrett, not exactly the girl next door. Awesome. Totally awesome. And Jeff surfs up Spicoli. People on moods should not drive. All right, so audiences, some of them felt a little bit let down by what they saw. They thought they were going to see a real dumb party movie, and instead they saw right. a really good movie. And sometimes people can't really process that. Right. Expectations kind of fuck up your experience. It's true. I mean, as for the critics themselves, this movie was not universally loved at all when it came wow. out. A few people were on its wavelength. A lot of people weren't. A lot of people got really... Moralistic, you know, like the Miami Herald, they said it was wrong to soft pedal the consequences of Stacy's misadventure in the keep in the interest of keeping te- things uh, light and zippy. And he thought that, and the Miami Herald also thought that um, Brad cheapened the, cheapened the character with the offensive masturbation scene. Uh, apparently, Judge Reinhold had a giant dildo in his lap, and Phoebe Cates didn't know. So when she walked in, she really does have an earnest reaction <laughs> to seeing this giant oh, dildo God. there. Ah. <gasps> uh. The L.A. Times was thought it was um, insane that all they ever care about is sex in this movie. Right. The, the L.A. Times said, you know, there's no reason at all why they don't express any thoughts or feelings about life after high school. You know, oh, how geez. do they feel about college? What do they think about life? We never know. It is ridiculous. If it would be, if it would be ridiculous to sidestep sex and emotions in a film about teens, then it is just as ridiculous to deny that kids don't ever think about anything else. Um, another but that review, movie, that movie, this movie isn't about sex. I think this movie is about a high school experience without the perspective of being an adult who is looking back on it, right? Like, I feel like it's very much in the moment. Like, again, not to keep on banging this drum, but it feels like a documentary. It's based on a book that is essentially a documentary. And it it feels like there is no reflection because they're just trying to get through the day. It's like, I'm just trying to pay off my car. It's true. I mean, I'm going to be reading actually several bad reviews because, okay. because it's kind of shocking to me that there were so many, but one that I really didn't like, uh, calls Stacy's character, calls Stacy a nymphomaniac. Oh boy. Which is just already getting off yeah. the wrong foot. Um, it calls like her deciding to be with Rat, her quote, chasing the only boy who doesn't want to sleep with her. It Then it turns all of this around and says its re- interpretation of the film, um, which it considers correct, is now a stupid, revoltingly sexist plot. And it says the only thing that kids can possibly learn from this movie is that women want to be sexually exploited. That sex oh, and it then God. yeah, it uses the word exploitation like a bazillion times, and it then it goes on to praise all the male performances, and then it compliments Phoebe Cates for being a model. It continues to refer to Stacy as quote the nympho, and then halfway through begins calling Amy uh, Amy Deckerling, and just can't even get her name right. One of the absolute meanest ones though comes from Roger Ebert. Oh wow, okay, interesting. Yes. Did he ever change it, or no? He always kept it like this. You know, I should check because he he revised himself a lot. Yeah. Um, but here he said is, how can they do this to Jennifer Jason Lee? How could they put such a fresh and cheerful person into such a scuzz pit of a movie? Don't they know they have a star on their hands? I didn't even know who Lee was when I walked into Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and yet I was completely won over by her. 
on, on all of this, I'm with him. Like he actually says what is correct about this. She contained so much light in life that she was a jewel to behold. And then she and everybody else in this so-called comedy is invited to plunge into offensive vulgarity. Uh, during a rock scene involving some extremely frank talk about certain popular me- methods of sexual behavior, even the rock fans were grossed out. There's a difference between raunchiness and gynecological detail. Uh, he says that the movie's cast struggles valiantly through all of this dreck, but rarely have I seen so many attractive young performers invited to appear in so many unattractive scenes. Whatever happened wow. to upbeat sex? Whatever happened to love and lust and romance and scenes where good-looking kids had a little joy and excitement in life instead Jeez. of all this grungy, downbeat humiliation? Why does somebody as pretty as Lee have to have her nudity exploited in shots where the only point is to show her ill at ease? If this movie had been directed by a man, I'd call it sexist. It was directed by a woman and Amy Heckerling, and it is sexist all the same. So wow. a lot of people were using the word sexist here because she is acknowledging the awkwardness of being a young woman, which right. I found fascinating. I mean, that really, I mean, it speaks volumes. That's really fascinating to me. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. So, Amy... We come to the question that we've uh, started to ask in this new uh, season two of the show. What would aliens think of this film? What do you think? Would they like it? Um, would they uh, want something more glossy? I, I don't know. What, what do you think they would think? I think they would value the work ethics seen in this film. Mm-hmm. I think they would think that we didn't have much sunshine or daylight, that we spend our entire lives as a species indoors. Um, they would think our, the food we ate is probably pretty bad for us. All those meatball sandwiches and Coca-Colas. Oh, yeah. I think that they would have a confusion, perhaps, about mating. Why do we mate if it seems mm. so miserable? They, maybe they would really clue into the fact that all of the good, good-looking erotic moments are fantasies. Even Spicoli's Bikini Girls when he wins that surfer contest. I like how they're they're taller than him. He's just like, oh, yeah. I'm a little guy surrounded by these big bikini babes. By, by the way, my favorite line is in that scene, even though I think that that scene kind of feels out of place in the film. But when Spicoli's like, where'd you get that jacket, dude? And the reporter's like, well, the network gave it to me. <laughs> my favorite line. It's like it's such a funny, like weird aside. But so maybe the aliens would catch up on how, how humans are modeling our behavior after other humans on questionable advice. Mm. We're all striving for an image that has never been real. I like that. I feel like this movie would be uh, really well served to show an alien after they had seen another high school film, right? Because I think that what makes this movie pop for me and, and probably for you is the context of it, right? We know how this movie fits in to the world of high school movies. And especially after the end of this journey, I think this movie elevates itself above many of them simply because it captures a lot of truth that every other movie has pockets of, but this movie, I think, puts it all together. Um, Is it the best high school comedy? I don't know, but I think it's one of the most adept comedies that can switch tone, that feels facile, that doesn't feel... um, 
even though it is incredibly white, it also feels like it's representative of a lot of different points of view. I don't know. There's something about this movie that really stuck the landing for me in the in the context of what we've been looking at. Um, yeah, apparently the book even like was more even about Jefferson and his desire to not be anybody's quote unquote black friend. Like it got a little bit more into the racism oh, that the movie decided to leave out. Yeah. Um, and it had a whole uh, subplot where he um, winds up. This is apparently true in the book that the Jefferson character, even before his car is totaled, hijacks a city bus because he wants to go home. So he just gets on the city bus and he's like, take me to my house. And he refuses oh, wow. to acknowledge that they don't have to take him to his house. And then he's banned from all buses. And then he's arrested for being involved in a robbery um, at and Radio Shack. Oh, and this wow. is true. And then he loses his scholarship and then he disappears. He immediately goes from being like the popular guy to being a guy that nobody talks about, which is really sad. Wow, that's so that's so interesting. I mean, I, I think they do a good job of showing a separation between him and the rest of the students, but you don't quite understand why that is. And I think that knowing this backstory, it's like, oh, wow, it's much more fascinating. Yeah, they did cut out like a lot of the darkness. I mean, apparently the backstory of the Linda character was that she had OD'd, that she was like kind oh, of a wow. bad kid who hung out with like a, a bunch of bad kids and did a lot of drugs. And then OD'd and her, her, her friends like dumped her body outside of a mall. Jesus. Yeah. And so now she decides that she's going to have like the straightest, squarest friend and kind of remake her life. And that's why she becomes friends with Stacy. Oh, she wow. kind of like uses that as a way to reboot herself. And also Spicoli winds up being pretty unpopular uh, at the end of the day because um, one of the classmates had um, his father and sister die in a car wreck. And Spicoli, I think, didn't put it together. So the real Spicoli shows up in class one day holding a newspaper with photos of the accident. And he's like, look at this like bitch and crash. And the kid was in uh, that classroom and he starts to cry. And then nobody spoke to Spicoli for a really long time. Yeah, it's just like Sean Penn now. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, if you want to hear Sean Penn talk about the real Spicoli and meeting him, who he based it on, this, this is Sean, Sean Penn. So this guy, this is a real person. Does this person, did this person ever know that he was the inspiration for you anyway, or some of the inspiration for Jeff Spicoli? I really don't think so. <laughs> but part of that may have had to do with him not knowing where he was. <laughs> do you ever, do you ever, have you run into this person since? So about two months ago, <laughs> I went out for a surf. And I was coming up this trail back to the road. And this fellow and his kids and family coming down. Uh, very well-spoken guy. Looked like a businessman or something. And he, and he says, Sean, how are you? And I'm shaking his head, hand. And... Uh, but, you know, I can see a very, you know, a family man. And then he said his name. Mm -hmm. And it was him. Yeah. And I, I would never have thought that anything uh, normal was going to come from that story. <laughs> it is interesting, like, that, like, that Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, these are both actors that get so into character or can really go toe-to-toe -to -toe for acting that Sean Penn was already doing this with Spicoli. It's such a big character, but he was living the Daniel Day-Lewis life on set, like, only call him Spicoli. His door said Spicoli. Like, he... That would have been really interesting because 
I think that when you see a character that big, you assume like, oh, this is just he's putting it on. But he really he really committed to that that role. And and it does show because what we know of Sean Penn now, it's so aggressively different than any version of him. I'm, I'm even talking about the Shanghai Surprise version of him, like back <laughs> in the day. Like I'm not saying that just the now now version of him. And thank God for Sean Penn, because uh, without him, there would be no COVID testing here in L.A. I mean, he's made it so amazing. Uh, his his that's his his whole organization that's kind of running that. I mean, that's totally fair, but it is funny that everybody on on set called him Sean De Niro. No oh boy, because they uh, thought he was taking it too far. I mean, yeah. Honestly, some of the stories you hear about the set make it sound pretty rough. Like, or there's a little bit of hazing. And Nicolas Cage talks about how he felt like he was hazed a bit in this film. He's I mean, first of all, like Nicolas Cage had auditioned for the Judge Reinhold part. He said he auditioned like ten or eleven times and didn't get it. Although some people say he kind of got it, except he was doing too many weird ob like improvisations. So they didn't oh, want really? him to be that major part. Well, um, I mean, I also heard the real reason why Judge Reinhold got that part because he was the boyfriend of Amy Heckerling's best friend who was doing casting. Uh, uh, and so I he heard was he was of, her neighbor. There's uh, a lot of rumors going around. Right. But yeah, apparently um, back then, Nicolas Cage, he was still going by Coppola. And oh, right. so everybody would just harass him on set. They would like congregate on his trailer, he said, and they would quote lines from Apocalypse Now at him. And they Jesus. would, he said that it made him very hard for him to believe himself, believe in himself, which is why right. he changed his name to Nicolas Cage. Can I, if you actually, one, can I say one thing here? Yeah. When I did my movie with Nicolas Cage and I had my dinner with Harvey or with, uh, with uh, not Harvey, the other Weinstein, um, literally the first question he asked was like, what was it like to be the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola? And it was like, oh. I spent like the first 20 minutes of that dinner talking about that. And you could tell, like, I was like, oof. Like, that was the first thing he said. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, that should never that be the first thing you say. No, what? No, the worst, the worst. Oh. Well, if you want to hear a little bit of Nicolas Cage in character, this is him in one of the deleted scenes. What's happening is um, school's really starting and like Jennifer Jason Lee runs up to say hi to Judge. And Cage is one of the guys standing right there. You'll recognize his voice. To Mr. Hyde. Your sister's turning into a fox. Really? All right. So, Amy, I think it is time to hear some more of this great inside scoop from the person who was there, um, Amy Heckerling. We're so excited to have her on the show. Uh, welcome, Amy. So, Amy, you're 27 when you direct Fast Times. This is kind of the first big movie for you. How do you get this movie? Like, were you up against other people? Like, what made, you know, a big studio take a, you know, chance on a first time director? What do you think you brought to it in that moment? It it didn't feel like, you know, oh boy, I'm young and I just got to do a film. I felt like I was a, a little crazy and uh, I was obsessed with like Orson Welles making a feature film when he was 24. Right. And um, <laughs> I had a film that was going um, at various studios and always put in turnaround and I was getting older and older and approaching 24. And then it was going at MGM. Um, we had sets being built. We had a crew. We had a cast. And um, it would have come out in Orson Welles' timing. And then the actors went on strike. You know, they said when, when it's the strike is over, we'll, you know, pick it up. We'll go back to it. And uh, the strike went on longer than anybody thought. So they had um, what they call force majeure, which is an act right. of God. I said, you know, SAG is not God, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but they dropped it saying that they didn't have to pay me anything, even though they kept me and Stuart Kornfeld and everybody else, you know, we were still working on things, but we weren't allowed to go onto the studio lot. So then um, my mil- my movie was in turnaround and um, it was, you know, picked up at various places, but it never like made it there, you know? And right. I was like, and then the whole Orson Welles window was closed and I felt like a complete <laughs> loser. Um, and uh, <laughs> this other script comes to me and I was like, but if I do this other script, I know I'll never get to be like a writer director, which is really, really, really what I wanted to do. Because I know that agents and show business and all that, they, they'll keep pushing you into using you for what they want to use you for as opposed right. to what you want to express. The script was really, really good. But um, then I asked some questions um, and apparently it was based on a book. And then I read the book, which Cameron Crowe wrote. And it was the book had amazing stuff in it. It was just unbelievably great. I met with Cameron and um, we were so much in agreement on so many things. And I loved so much of what he already had written in a different place and said, can't we use this? Can't we use that? And so we went back to like what. What I think, I hope he liked too. And uh, I had a meeting with the studio, the the people that would say yes or no, not the people. I mean, people show you the script and they talk to you and all of that, but then somebody has to say yes. I told them a couple of um, my ideas and they went, okay, (laughs) like, then you'll do it. (laughs) Wow. I I had an AFI film that they liked, so that was good. And was the AFI film a comedy film or is it just something totally different? It was a comedy and it was about a teenage girl um, who's going to turn 20 in a couple of hours, her birthday okay. at midnight. And um, she want, she still hasn't lost her virginity and she wanted to lose it while she was a teenager. So um, it's like she's got a ticking clock to lose her virginity. <laughs> I mean, there was pressure because, you know, it's like sort of post-sexual revolution before AIDS reared its ugly head. People felt like, what's your problem? Why aren't you having sex? You know, you you know, you're like a big baby if you don't. And I mean, this movie comes out like I feel like in Porky's times, like where sex is like, you know, Bessel, Whorehouse in Texas, like those films are like sex. But here it's, you know, it's kind of dealt with in a I think in a more realistic way. I think about that the moment of like seeing like the graffiti on the wall, you know, like on the ceiling. It's like the kind of hallmark of this movie is that it's kind of going against the trend of what was going on, not only with teen films, but with sex films and stuff like that as well. Like it, it, it felt real, but it was also funny and all the other things. I'm like really grateful that they let me, you know, do it that way because, um, you know, all the foreign films, uh, you know, you could see like black and white naked people that aren't in the best shape. Um, and you go like, Wow, that reality hits you and you go, gee, that's what it looks like. I don't know if I ever want to do it. You know, so I wanted to have what it felt like for for me when I was, you know, a little bit younger, which was that it was scary, but you were looked down upon as like a prude if you didn't, you know, start to have sex at a certain point. And it wasn't necessarily romantic. There's not music playing in slow motion, you know, fuzzy hands holding, touching, uh, <laughs> like, you know, language, romantic stuff. It's like, this isn't comfortable. You know, you're banging my head against this. That hurts. 
and looking around because you're kind of maybe like bored also, you know, even when she has sex in the, in the um, changing room, that's a disappointment. And um, the only sex that appears to be good is the fantasy that a judge has before he's interrupted. And on that cabana scene, I mean, you really had to try to stick up for your vision of how you wanted this sex to go. I mean, that scene in particular, it's if, if I feel like I've heard that there are so many arguments about it in the rating and the editing that was out of your control. I mean, what all what all happened? Fortunately, um, Universal had usually executives there. They work in development and then they're bugging you while you're shooting. But they had a special executive, Verna Fields, who was like um, just the award winning editor. From and they yeah. have been working with you in post-production, which is such a smart idea. So I really had this concept that like all the movies we see show romance and sex from the male point of view. And you never see it from the female's point of view, which is like, you know, you see a naked guy for the first time. You're going, well, where's that going? Um, you know, like <laughs> that's scary. And um, that it's frightening and uncomfortable and um, I, I'm giving you a very negative view of my mind, but, um, and also you always see naked women and then you see men and you just see them from the waist up. And I thought, well, wait a minute. What if you saw a naked guy, but you didn't see the full frontal on the woman? So that's how I shot it, where he, you know, Mark Damone takes off his clothes and you see her from the side and then they have sex and then it, you know, it's a big letdown. You know, the music stops abruptly and uh, they <laughs> wiggle back in their clothes and he has to go real fast. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this, the rating board said you can't have um, full frontal nudity on a male um, because the male organ is aggressive and the female organ is passive. Wow. So um, a male organ is an automatic X rating. But a female frontal nudity is R. It's so crazy. So, we were just talking about this with Mark Waters, who directed Mean Girls, and like Ron Burgundy has an erection, and that was PG-13. But in Mean Girls, they just mentioned the word vagina, and they were going to make it R. And it hasn't gone away. I mean, how many years ago was that? And if anything, it was kind of an anti-sex scene. And yet they said, nope, that's a dirty scene. So you have wow. to... Either get an X rating or you have to cut out his penis. I mean, or you know, blow it up. Either way. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting how tentative the MPAA was when on the other side of this, you're hearing from financiers, a lot of directors are at this time. Um, well, if you want you get your film greenlit, if you want this money, you're going to have to give us three shots of boobs and this much of that. And it, there's like the, almost this kind of clinical approach to what they want you to show. You know, I heard that from Martha Coolidge in that film of like, you know, we need the X amount of boobs and we need X amount of sex scenes. And it was like, uh, I don't even remember there being that much of that in, in that movie. I mean, I remember the story more, much more than that, uh, to her credit. Uh, you know, even the way that I shot Jennifer was very like stark. Like I wanted, it's not nude, it's naked, you know, um, and so when I was at, you know, one of the first screenings, somebody was yelling out, fat chick. <laughs> like, oh, man. First of all, she's not fat. Second of all, I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, I'm wondering, you know, when you have a young cast like this 
and you care about them and you care about these actors. And then to hear people yell things like fat chick at the screen and then to get the ultimate prize of seeing Jennifer Jason Leigh to go on to have this great career, to see so many of your people in this film go on to have a great career. Do you have that sense of, of like pride, like my kids did good? Um, Yeah, more or less with different people. I mean, you know, when Sean Penn gets an Oscar, you know, to me, it's like Spicoli's getting an Oscar. Right. And, um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, of course, you're overjoyed. And, you know, Saoirse Ronan getting nominated for things. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, I feel like, oh, my kids, you know. <laughs> I mean, when yeah. I went back and read a lot of the original reviews from when it was released, I had the impression, I didn't know how, how it felt to you, that a lot of critics weren't really seeing it straight. Like they went in either expecting it to be Porky's or wanting it to be American Graffiti, and they didn't see the film that you made in, on its own terms. They totally didn't. And um, it was just sort of like reflected in the the um, poster, which was like they had luck with the Steve Martin poster where here's a wacky character, you know, comedy figure, and here's all his like, you know, um, props all around him. So he's holding all this stuff and he's got this. So let's do that with Spicoli and try to make him like the next Steve Martin. And he'll have like his pizza and, and sexy girls and all this other stuff and things that are Spicoli-ish around him. And I think it was misleading. Uh, there was another poster that had, you know, a bunch of the characters and was set up more like a yearbook kind of thing with pictures of them and saying what types they were. Um, and I thought that one was like reflected more of what I was trying to do. Uh, and then there was one, uh, one of the advertising people came in and said, I had this brilliant idea. I had a dream and it would be all these girls in a package of French fries and they would have sweatshirts that spelled out fast times, you know, each one had a different letter, like the girls in French fries are mixed in. You know, the producer looked at me and, you know, just told me, you know, okay, come on, let's go. And you know, I was just going to start to go crazy, you know, and had to calm me down. Is it true that during the making of this film, your very first husband, the one who didn't read the book, kind of sat down and gave you an ultimatum about being a director? Oh, yeah, we got divorced during post. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he thought making a movie was an excuse to stay away from him. I mean, and by the way, also creating another uh, obstacle, right? Because I think you said that you wanted to be married and have a kid and have three movies done before you were 30. So you had to kind of restart over at, uh, what, like 28? Well, yeah, and I had to, well, I, I wanted three movies done before I um, had a kid. And I did. But, you know, all this stuff was, um, I didn't realize that there's like, you know, sort of a mental problem, OC, obsessive control, you know. Yeah. Anyway, and I I would have these um, rules and, and deadlines that would be dictated to me, and then I had to, you know, make them happen. I met a, a guy at a club, and he was, you know, with a rock group, and he was singing, and it was like, you know, time was ticking, and it was like, okay, getting married now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't advise people to do what I did. And if they feel like doing what I did, they should go to a psychopharmacologist and get some medication. Well, and yet, you know, as you're doing this, you're still making some of like the biggest comedies of the 80s. And what I really admire when I look at your 
track record is just how many different kinds of comedy styles you're capable of doing, you know, from this to National Lampoon to Look Who's Talking up to Clueless. I mean, you seem to like you have such a broad range of comedy influences. Um, huh. <laughs> I, I never thought of that. I mean, you know, you're thinking like, how can I do something so that they won't kick me out of the uh, club, you know, and they'll <laughs> let me do this again. Um, you know, it ain't that easy for a girl. Uh, they they all come from different places. And, you know, for me, Clueless was kind of an escapist, aspirational world. Um, and um, Fast Times was just like, I mean, I wanted it grittier than it was. I mean, I remember location scouting and we saw a really crummy mall and I thought, okay, these kids are not rich. They all have to work. They can't afford, you know, a car. If one of them can, it's because it's a real piece of junk. And, you know, and everybody was like, no, his car, it could be old, but it has to be really cherry. And I'm going, well, nobody in the Bronx ever says cherry. What do you mean? (laughs) And uh, they go, well, you know, it's got to be like in really great shape, even though it's old. And I'm like, well, that that would cost a lot of money. And how much do you make making, you know, French fries at a fast food place? I don't, you know, my parents are in accounting, so I don't see how, you know, I'm always going like, how do those friends afford that apartment? Um, (laughs) Anyway, so it didn't make sense to me. And then we'd see a mall that was kind of like, you know, not a great looking place. And I'd say, oh, this is perfect. And the DP and the producers were like, no, no, we can't shoot here. We can't shoot here. And it was like, because it's too downtrodden and just like you want to have something prettier. And I'm like, but they don't live in a great neighborhood. Um, You know, this is like there's kind of an economic downturn. And, you know, you didn't expect that you could do better than your parents did. You know, things were not going that well. It was sort of written like late 70s, more than 80s, really, the book. Oh, but you were able to get that realness. I mean, the abortion sequence in the film, like, i that's what I'm surprised that you were able to keep in, right? Like that, to have that moment in a in a movie where you're saying that they want Spicoli on the poster, like pizza dude, that you were able to have these moments. I mean, that that to me seems like such a tremendous win that they didn't force these things out. Like that you could actually deal with them in a real way. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very like happy that they uh, let that aspect stay in there because it's like, you know, for young girls starting to have sex and not, not being taught every single thing and, you know, being very fertile. And even if you follow all the rules, you know, you're more likely to get pregnant, you know, then you have to know how do you deal with that? What do you do? How do you get the money? Where do you go? Who do you, you know, I mean, for me, it was, it all ties into what the title was, which was, you know, fast times at Richmond. I was like, things are moving too fast for these young people who would normally have more of a, a time when they would be growing up and, you know, learning about things and being nurtured for a longer amount of time. Um, and then they were being thrown into needing to have money, so having to have a job and having sex and then wondering, uh-oh, what do I do with an unwanted pregnancy? And those things were too, coming at them at too young an age. And I wanted, you know, and sex coming at you too young an age and all of these things coming at you too fast and how do young people deal with it? 
And I read something that like those were the first scenes of the film, like the treating the abortion storyline because it was like uh, that that was the location you had first and the studio got a little bit nervous. And there was something about where John Landis was sent to kind of essentially check on you or something like that to make sure that they were getting a comedy. Was that true? Yeah, I thought he was visiting. He was, you know, he was a friend. And um, when we shot in the house, that's where, you know, Stacy is. And she's like getting flowers and worried about will her parents find out about this guy and where she has sex and it's not fun and it's not pretty and exciting. And then when she's waiting for him to pick her up to go to an abortion and he doesn't show up. And, and then she's talking to her friend on the phone and she's crying and they're going, what kind of a movie are you making? Like it's a, you know, a weepy woman film. And it's like, well, there's like six characters and, you know, their arcs are all different and the good stuff happens at other places. Um, but they were worried that it was just going to be, you know, too female and too depressing. So then I had, was at a place where we're shooting the bathroom scene, um, and um, John Landis came by and, uh, you know, he saw what we were doing and we were talking and I thought he was, you know, having a friendly visit. But I find out many, many years later that they had sent him to check on me because they thought the movie would suck. And he said, no, leave him alone. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to be great. <laughs> so, um, I'm extremely grateful to John. While you were talking about the mall and the mall being such a centerpiece of this film, I mean, so much that you're shooting in it at three o'clock in the morning. All I'm reading about mm -hmm. today is how the mall is over and dead. And this thing that was the center of teenage life is a thing of the past. I mean, in a way, you, you managed to at least capture what the mall was. I mean, should we be mourning the loss of the mall as a place? <laughs> well, I personally liked malls basically because it meant I could be shooting on smooth floors and, you know, having dolly shots and the sparkly lights, you know, all over the place. And um, it was like a very wonderful location as far as I was concerned. Um, and also as a person, when I'm not making a film, I liked going there because um, I'm not an outdoors person. I, I am very pale and I burn <laughs> and um, I, but I like to walk around so, uh, I could go to the mall. And then when I had a kid, I could stick her in the stroller and be walking and walking and walking. And there used to be bookstores and you go in there for a while and get some coffee. And just like, you know, it was like a place where I could move around and, um, and still be indoors and still see people and still, you know, read some books and stuff. Well, and there are movie theaters too there. Oh, I oh yeah. Them. I miss the movie theater. Yeah. I miss them too. Well, Amy, this has been such an honor to get to talk to you. Um, we adore oh, all of your work you. and we're so happy yeah. to get to just ask you questions about a movie that means a lot to both of us. I have to say like when we did our clueless episode, the amount of love for that movie, I mean, and you know, I mean, you're surrounded by it. Like it's just amazing to see how many new fans continue to find these movies. So it's, you know, I think it's, you know, that longevity of these films is so special and important, I think, uh, and, and often not done. I think comedies to have longevity, it really shows that you're a, a very special, awesome director. So we're excited to have you. Well, I wish you people were running studios. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Well, stay cool. And I hope there is a shady mall walk in your future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. 
Well, I'm a glow. You know, I, I honestly doing this episode makes me really understand on how American Graffiti got on the list because I feel so nostalgic and connected to this film in particular. Yeah. That, you know, it is a bit blinding, even though it's weird. I mean, I'm not from 1982. Like, this wasn't my generation, but it still feels like my generation because I Absolutely. think- I think my gener- my high school was the last high school years, I think, that were kind of like this. You know, I, we didn't have Facebook. It didn't right. change. No, and I so didn't I've, I always felt like school. I identify more with this than I do with a lot of the more modern films. Well, I think I identify with this and uh, the movie that we're talking about next week, Days and Confused, a lot. Like, that was a very big movie for me. Um, probably a little bit even more than this one. Um, let's even take a little tease of that. Let's uh, hear a little bit of Dazed and Confused. This country is founded by people who were into aliens, man. George Washington, man, he was in a cult. And the cult was in the aliens, man. You didn't know that? No. Oh, man, they were way into that type of stuff, man. air from there, man. It's no good. It was the last day of school. Uh, Miss Crawford, I was thinking that maybe you and I can get together over the summer. I mean, it'll be legal. I mean, we can make it. It was the first day of summer vacation. Do you guys know anything about a party here tonight? No, sir. It was a time they will never forget. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I thought he was cute. Well, that's you thought he was cute? Then. Do you realize when he graduated, we were like three years old? If only they could remember it. Okay. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. Uh, so next week, Amy, we will be back with the audience pick for the ending of our first miniseries of season two, Dazed and Confused. It's available wherever you stream your films. Uh, what a great, fun episode. Uh, and uh, I've been loving our guests that we've been getting. We've had amazing guests across the board. So um, as we continue to do this, we always reach out to you and say, if you know anybody that you think would be great for a movie that we have coming up, let us know. We are not afraid to reach out to our friends uh, through friends. Um, all right. So, Amy, I will see you next week. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.